This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Today, I'd like to welcome Vitold Henish, and he's a management professor here at Wharton, and also Cinziana Dorabantu, who is from New York University, and she's also a management professor, and they're here to talk about their new research. Thank you for dropping in to chat with us. Much appreciated. Uh, and the research is about corporations who are interested in limiting reputational damage when they come under attack by a protest group or shareholder group. I'll let you explain exactly which groups companies need to be worried about, but what they can do to limit the reputational damage. And one of the things is to work on your reputation before you come under attack because that, that encourages friends and family, shall we say, uh, uh, friendly shareholder groups and community groups uh, to, to come in and support you and come to a company's defense. So let's start, I think, since Yana, with an example of uh, a company that may have done it right or done it wrong so uh, viewers can get an idea of exactly what we're talking about. So, Steve, thank you very much for, for having us here. We're, we're always ha very happy to talk about, about uh, research and this particular piece of research. Um, this actually, so you've, I think you've summarized it really nicely, but I do, do want to point out that we are, we're asking a fairly straightforward question. What happens to companies when, uh, when they're faced with, uh, with a situation where a critical event, and it can be a court decision, it can be a negative uh, news report uh, sort of from a an environmental organization. Uh, what happens to um, to the company in such moments? How do their uh, shareholders respond, and how do their stakeholders respond after 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 these events? You see this in the news all the time. You see it with Uber, and I would probably use Uber as a sort of an ex as, a, as an example of a company that's trying to expand internationally very very quickly, and because of the pace of its international expansion, it doesn't have the time and the resources to engage with every community that it affects, and with every government and every regulator in every country. So every single time there is a news story about Uber, it's usually sort of surrounding by, by a lot of negative reactions from other stakeholders who have something negative to say about Uber, as well as stakeholder reactions who, from stakeholders who have something positive to say, from consumers who are very happy with the new product and so on. Um, companies that, you know, companies that do this well, you don't see in the news as much, but there are companies, of course, that do this well. Airbnb in the, in the shared economy uh, space is a good example. IKEA, when in the 90s it faced a number of uh, allegations of, ch uh, of uh, child labor being used in its, uh, by one of its suppliers in India, it responded, it took its time to work with NGOs and with UNICEF to understand the problem and then put in place sort of uh, long-term solutions to, to make sure that the children who are, you know, the stakeholders that they cared about, uh, whatever they do that is in the best interest of the children. So I just wanted to ask, so... I believe we're talking about a situation where a company actually is doing things to make it right as opposed to just taking a public relations mm -hmm. uh, approach where they're just saying the right things. Yeah, it's very much about that's what it takes to build up the, the relationship with stakeholders. It's mm -hmm. not enough just to put out a glossy press release to have a pretty sustainability report. Uh, you have to really engage the stakeholders. In fact, some other research uh, we were talking about today uh, really gets into the nuts and bolts of how you build up that relationship. But it's, it's a lot more than a press release. It's a lot more than a check. Uh, it's some deep, long-held interactions. So maybe a, a, a short summary of 
what the research looked for and what it found would be interesting to hear now. Well, I'll give you the nutshell version, which is uh, it's worth investing in relationships because once you have a strong positive relationship, once you have a friend from a stakeholder, uh, that friend is going to stick up for you. So when you're attacked, uh, when you're facing a down day, when someone's coming after you, you're not going to be first in front of the microphone. Uh, ideally, your stakeholders, the IKEA's, uh, save, was save the Children in IKEA's case that Cindy uh, talked about, they're the ones defending you against the allegations of a human rights abuse. Um, the community members are talking about how it's our mine, it's our factory, we don't want it shut down. Uh, so we're, we're getting someone else in front of the microphone to be um, what one could call an upstander or an advocate for the company. So is the lesson that that you want to do this spade work ahead of time? I mean, I, I, know, I get that that's the lesson, but do you talk about how to do that spade work or are you just saying you need to do the spade work, figure out how to do it? In this particular paper, we we take these relationships as given, okay. right? So we're saying, we're, we're comparing firms that have good relationships with their stakeholders okay. and with firms that don't, and we're doing this at the individual stakeholder level. So we're looking at every single stakeholder, and the stakeholder can be a local community, the stakeholder can be an NGO or an activist group, it can be a mayor, a governor, a regulatory agency. So we're looking where we found a way to, uh, to measure their perceptions of the company using uh, newspaper reports. So we essentially coded 22 2,000 articles about 26 mines around the world in, in 20 countries around the world. And for each of these mines, we have a very, very detailed timeline of which stakeholders spoke about the firm or took action against the mining firm and what exactly they did. Is it an act of cooperation or is it an act of conflict? And using this timeline, we show that stakeholders that uh, with, with whom the firm has built good relationships in the past, are the, these are the stakeholders that when something bad happens, when a negative core decision comes about, they're going to you know, stand up and speak to defend the firm because they, they see this as a good firm, whereas the stakeholders with whom the, the firm has a really bad relationship are going to use this as an opportunity to reiterate their opposition. And before you know it, you have sort of uh, a series or a chorus of vo voices for, for firms have, who have uh, really bad relationships with their stakeholders. You have a chorus of voices, uncoordinated voices, but what the public hears in the media is this sort of chorus of, of voices all speaking negatively about the firm. And that's how you know, that's the making of a crisis in, in, in today's world. So and, are there and a follow-on, and, yeah. and just in the second part of the paper, we show that it's those courses of negative opinion that contribute to a collapse in shareholder value. Mm -hmm. So we can look at um, a similar set of critical events, uh, about 160 in total, and the ones in which you see this negative course of opinion are the cases in which shareholder value collapses. The cases where you have the upstanders, where you have the stakeholders speaking on your behalf, the same degree of... Uh, uh, negative opinion at the onset doesn't translate into a collapse in shareholder value. So it's not just this is a good thing to have, it's a nice to have. It actually contributes to the protection of shareholder value. So that's obviously a key takeaway. And as you were just giving us another one, are there others that, that would be sort of bullet point key takeaways from the paper that, uh, that we could talk about? So to me, it's really sort of the benefits of, of stakeholder engagement and doing this in a strategic and systematic way, sort of the same process that the firm would apply to managing its relationships with suppliers and employees and customers needs to be applied to managing a much broader set of stakeholders, including the local communities, the activists and NGOs and the government, sort of governments at different level. Um, so that's one, one big big takeaway because, you know, if you, if you manage to put in place these good stakeholder relationships, you prevent the crisis. 
crisis and the best right. way of managing the crisis is to not have one at all. Right. But I think another one that was to me, um, to, to me very interesting is how in today's sort of era of increased transparency or information availability, you don't need to have co explicit coordination among stakeholders to end up with a social movement against the firm. And here's what I mean by this. If, if you start with a court, again, negative court report, these things happen, you know, things, things, get, things get litigated and there is a decision. If there's a negative decision against the firm, then you might actually have a local a protest in the local community. You might have the uh, mayor or a government speak out against the firm. You may have broader mobilization by, by activists. And these different stakeholders, you know, they never coordinated. They never you know, they never got on a conference call or using an email distribution list. Uh, what happened actually, they were using information available in the public space, in the, in the media, to social media. In the so, and, and the social media, of right, course, right. to synchronize their reactions. Mm -hmm. And these independent reactions all started to sort of sound like a concerted voice against, against the company. And at the same time, I imagine social media can also be that early warning system, the canary in the coal mine, right? If, if companies are monitoring it and they can see what some problems are that might yeah. be brewing, it gives them a chance to go in and fix them, not just sort of PR them, but to actually say, maybe we need to be doing some work in this area. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the managerial takeaways is the, the need to invest not just in the relationships, but understanding your stakeholders up front. And so you need to gather that data, whether it's, uh, I mean, uh, in other work, we argue about the importance of actually meeting and talking and building these relationships with in-person contact, but monitoring them on social media and in the print media, uh, being aware of what they're saying and what drives their behavior is, is obviously very important. So save yourself a headache, but more than a headache, or in addition to a headache, save yourself uh, 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 save your stock from taking a big hit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Again, invest in these relationships. The same way you invest in physical capital, the same way you invest in human capital, invest in relationship capital. And you talk in the paper about the value of information signals, which I think you've been you know, sort of talking about here. But is there something specific to say about these information signals that that you haven't already covered here? So they, you know, they they have been in other research by other uh, scholars, has shown that is our information, you know, information signals coming from the media and from stakeholder reactions are important to managers because they can foresee a crisis. They're important to investors because again they can foresee some problems to the future cash flow of the firm. We show with this paper that they are important to to stakeholders to you know to um, to synchronize their reaction in the way that doesn't require coordination, explicit coordination among them. But I think you know if if we want if uh, if I were to push that to a managerial implication, I would say to managers and their and their teams, it's really important not to wait until they see something already kind of coming together and forming like a social movement. They should they should, they should really understand that again in today's world, almost any any event, any statement, any action can easily escalate into something much bigger, into a broader crisis because of these the dynamics that we observe in our research. Yeah, I think just to, to add to that, I think there are two different ways these negative, these critical events can escalate. And, and both of them, I think, catch managers by surprise. One is that when you have the allies, it's not just that your allies discount the negative information, they can actually rally to your defense. So it's really worthwhile having them. It's not just that they say, oh, this doesn't matter, I don't believe this, who are these people making these accusations? They'll actually stand up and defend you. So it's it's more than discounting the information signal, it's reacting to it. Positive uh, reinforcement. Right? And on the other side, yeah. 
negative information, as Cindy was pointing out, can really set off this cascade. So it can be a lot worse than the initial news story. It can blow up and spiral out of control when you don't have the relationships. Um, what company failed <laughs> in all of this? And can you think of a good example where it, was, it went really south and, and could have been avoided? In other words, it's one thing if they were doing some things that are going to be perceived by the public as negative, and there's no way to spin that really. But but maybe uh, it it was really uh, a little bit misperceived by by the public in some way, and uh, and they missed the opportunity to. I think I heard you say as we were chatting ahead of time to um, the time for crisis management is a year before the crisis, mm -hmm. right? Um, can you name names? <laughs> um. I would use two examples. So I, sp I, I brought up Uber a little yes. bit at the beginning. It's something that I'm doing in, um, in mm -hmm. current research, ongoing, right. ongoing research. And I think Uber will defend the speed of its international expansion mm -hmm. based on the business model. You know, they need a lot of drivers right. on the road in order to make the, the riders happy. They need a lot of riders to, to keep the drivers happy. And it's, it's that need for sort of a critical mass on both sides that, that uh, ex explains the speed of their mm -hmm. expansion. And because they are doing things so quickly, they don't have the time to build these relationships. Relationships take time, right, between people as well as between companies and their stakeholders. Uh, and so this is, you know, this is this is, Uber is an example of a company that's been banned in a number of, if in hundreds of cities around the world, yeah. because they they didn't put themselves in a situation to 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 be defended by by those who have a lot to gain, including the drivers who joined Uber. So by those who have a lot to, and the riders who are happy to use Uber. And as a, uh, as a result, their market, their potential market capitalization, I think, is really plummeted. I mean, this has had a real impact. If you look at what the the estimates were, you know, Uber was going to be worth more than all the automobile companies. It was going to be worth mm -hmm. it more than all the airlines. That was based on Uber being successful in China and India mm -hmm. and Germany and France and England. And it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And so they can no longer justify that market cap. It, it, this is it's really material to future to current owners, potential future shareholders, to the future of this company uh, that it's had these missteps up front. Would they have been able to so developing relationships takes time, and if they had invested that and taken the time, would would competitors have gotten a jump on them? I mean, it's sort of a, you know, how do you what what can you do? You're you're kind of going to like take a hit in in some way, either way. If you talk to someone from Uber, they will always say that this was the only way, yes. right? Because they needed to be the biggest player on the mar in the market, and they didn't have the time right. to, you know. Now first mover and all all of that. First sort of mover thing. everywhere and the biggest first mover and a result of that, hopefully the biggest player on the market. I, you know, uh, and because of that, I didn't have the time to to build these relationships. Yeah. Is it going to backfire? I think very much so. Mm -hmm. Is it likely that um, that some of the competitors who maybe took things a little slower and build these relationships, you know, they were second in the market, but they understood, they observed the problem, the problems that Uber was having, and tried to address them by lobbying the regulators a little bit more and talking to the taxi drivers who are affecting and seeing how they can actually sort of find a solution that works for everyone. Mm -hmm. Everybody. I don't know. It's too soon to tell, right? Yes. It's it's with Uber. It's really too too right. soon to tell. But an inter really interesting. I think moving out of the new economy, let's look talk about energy companies, right? This boom in the fracking industry uh, that Cindy is also studying in some ongoing research. Um, these are companies that made the play to go quickly to expand uh, gas supplies here in Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere around the world. And there are all these estimates that this was going to revolutionize the industry. But they're 
you know, you drive through these towns and you see these protests. You see, you know, no fracking here, stop fracking, don't build this pipeline. Uh, you see concerns and you see reservations. Well, who went slow? It was some of the alternative energy suppliers, uh, whether it's wind, solar, and others, uh, who were moving more incrementally, building relationships with government officials, building up support uh, for wind farms, uh, for solar arrays. And, and I think you're starting to see the future of the energy industry change a little bit in terms of what role is fracking going to play versus alternative energy. One of them was definitely move fast, let's own this. Uh, but now it, it's worked in a few states in the United States. It hasn't worked elsewhere. It's not working in too many other countries of the world. And alternative energy continues to kind of be the tortoise that's moving steadily ahead. And um, we'll see which way it plays out over the next five or 10 years. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, I, I just wonder if there were some, you know, uh, there were some legitimate concerns about that industry that that I think maybe went ignored. Would, would, would you agree with that? And where, you know, I mean, environmental considerations uh, that that they either didn't address or, or, or didn't know how to address. Well, I think they could have addressed them through, let's, let's talk to the governments about what a reasonable standard is for water disposal. And what has to happen to the water that gets pumped out of the ground? What are the standards for it to be disposed in the cities? What are the standards of treatment that are going to be required? Mm -hmm. And they chose to take a little bit more of a cowboy mentality. And, uh, you know, that's the city's problem. It's not our problem. We're following the law. We're not giving up any information on what's in the water. And that raised people's concerns and skepticism. It would have taken more time to decide what a reasonable water treatment standard would be to build up state level and national level regulation. It would have created more transparency, more oversight. I think the industry would be a lot healthier today. Interesting. That's, that's a very interesting example. Um, what misperceptions did the study dispel? The, I, I think one of the, the biggest ones, um, at least uh, something that I see a lot in the industry, is people think that building these relationships with the local community or with NGOs, they're just symbolic actions, right, with very limited effects on the company's operations or on the stock price. And I think we're, we're really providing evidence for the fact that it's really the other way around, that these things are incredibly valuable, um, both in terms of allowing the operations to go ahead on schedule and on budget, and as a result of that also very incredibly valuable in sort of in the industry by, by looking for the stock price for the company itself, for shareholders. It reminds me of something you said where, uh, uh, I mean, in the environmental area, again, maybe an example is what the term greenwashing, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a company that they're really not taking care of the environment the way maybe they should or the way that, that the community and a lot of other folks think they should. But they'll do, you know, they'll, they'll have a sustainability off officer and they'll plant a few trees and they'll, they'll do a couple of symbolic things. But you're saying that's that's not going to cut it. Yeah, I think it's really important. We're not measuring something that's in the annual report, whether right. they have a sustainability report, whether they meet some reporting standard. Right. We think what's important is what stakeholders think about the firm, and we're measuring that. Mm -hmm. And so the key is not, do you have a report? Do you meet a standard? Do you get five stars? Mm -hmm. It's, are there people willing to stand in front of the microphone for you when you criticize? Do you have that network of relationships with community leaders, NGOs, government officials? That's what matters. That's what we're trying to draw attention to. It's not greenwash. It's substantive, real relationships. Mm -hmm. Do the right thing, in a way. Do, do the right thing for the right people. Yeah. And to build off that, so you, you, this is in the mining industry around the world, yeah. and there's a lot of examples, particularly in parts of Africa, where mining firms, which are in the 
business of building things have built a lot of schools and a lot of health clinics. They tend to be empty because they don't think, you know, sufficiently far to staff them as well. And these become targets of community protest. They, you know, on a, in a few occasions, they've actually been bombed. The schools that you see in a, in a CSR report has been bombed a few years later because the community really rejected that particular initiative because it was put in place without their input. Nobody asked them whether they wanted a school, whether that this was their sort of their, a priority for the community. Nobody asked whether the health clinic would make the biggest difference. They were never consulted. And this is, you know, one way of having a relationship is to actually start meaningful, have a meaningful conversation, listen to each other, try to address each other's concerns. And very few companies do that in a, in a very serious way. And what makes your research different from other research in this area? There have been a lot of assertions that um, building relationships with stakeholders, being a responsible company, can pay in a time of crisis. Uh, people have talked about the insurance value of reputation. Uh, this is the first research that, that we've seen uh, that really gets down and shows that that's true, that the reason there's a payoff when you're under attack, the reason your share price doesn't collapse is because individual stakeholders rally to your defense. We actually show that in our media reports, that someone who is sort of neutral or slightly positive towards the mine the day after it's attacked by the minister or the day after it's attacked by Greenpeace, those neutral or slightly positive stakeholders actually like the mine more in terms of what they say to the press. And the reason is they themselves feel threatened. And when you feel threatened, you respond, you defend. It's not just that the uh, people discount the bad news. They're actually rallying in, in favor of the mine. And I think showing that effect at the level of the individual stakeholder is really novel and it really buttresses this idea that there is an insurance value. We're getting under the hood and seeing why it happens and how important those individual relationships are. So I noticed uh, in your paper that you talked about the many other things that you could be looking at next. So tell us a little bit about what you might look at next or what's, what's, what are some of the more interesting things that this opens up for new research. So we're continuing this line of uh, research by by having with new research that looks at the importance sort of the timing of, of stakeholder engagements. So now we've sort of I, I, I think we've we've had a couple of pieces where we've uh, looked at the impact in terms of financial impact and uh, impact on on stakeholders reactions. Now we're actually trying to see how how can you build better relationships with um, uh, with your stakeholders and we're doing this in um, in a couple of ways. I'll, I'll mention one. So in one one, we're looking at the benefits of doing this proactively. I think one of the biggest differences in terms of leaders and laggards in this, uh, in, in, in today's world, in many, many industries, is, uh, is, is, is this timing issue. Some firms have, uh, have become better in terms of uh, thinking about their stakeholders as they strategize about their operations and trying to understand who they are, where they are, how they are affected, what they care about, what they might say, and, and essentially go to the stakeholders, you know, if it's a local community, go to the local community and initiate uh, a dialogue, hopefully an ongoing dialogue, to try to address these issues from day one. Right? And if you do that, and if you do that well, then you're, you're likely to be in a much better situation down the road Right, this is this is where you address the crisis a year before it happens, and you're not going to be in the news. And if something happens, you're going to be given a chance, either the benefit of the doubt, or you'll actually be defended by your stakeholders, and you'll be given a chance to address every single issue uh, in a way that allows you to have a meaningful sol solution, which is probably also a col collaborative solution. So, all right, what haven't I asked you that would be important for everyone to know? 
I think one of the things, uh, people are often surprised that we study the mining industry and that we're drawing insights on what constitutes uh, good stakeholder engagement, uh, good corporate social responsibility practices from the mining industry. Uh, but there's a reason for that. Uh, the mining industry made some uh, massive mistakes. Uh, these firms that we're studying or firms in the industry wrote off a billion dollars of capital. Uh, and I guess we'd encourage people to try to learn from their mistakes instead of repeating them. Um, most of the firms we're studying didn't adopt uh, better practices, uh, better processes until a disaster occurred. And they learned from their mistakes. Um, I think the reason we're studying this industry is they have learned and other managers should try to learn from their mistakes instead of repeating them. Thank you very much for coming in. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.